and welcome to Z3 News. I'm James Bailey, and today is Tuesday, May 26, 2020. And today I want to continue the discussion that we've had over the past two weeks on these programs regarding Rome. And what I'm trying to do is lay the groundwork from the scriptures and from historical facts showing that Rome continues to operate today as the dominant kingdom in the earth, and they will continue to do so until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to destroy them. And I know that sounds like a very odd statement, and the reason it does is because history has been rewritten so that we don't know the truth about what's happening in our world today. But if we're willing to dig into the historical facts and dig into the scriptures to understand what the scriptures say about our times, we can know the truth. And now, for the longest time, I did not know any of these things. And I was like everyone else, that when I began to hear about these things, it sounded very strange. And it's because I, like all the rest of us, have been lied to in school and in our movies and documentaries any kind of history perspectives that we've been given have been filled with so many lies and so much of the truth has been removed that we just don't know much of anything. And so when we hear the truth, it just sounds very bizarre. But I went through this process where God began to um, show me the danger that we are currently facing and this is a danger that was completely I was completely unaware of because there are no voices there are no warnings there are there's hardly anyone that is aware of these things and so even people like myself who have been uh dedicated Christians and faithful church attenders I wasn't hearing any of these things and it's because it's been the, the enemy has been so successful in blinding us. And so, we, so we, because we don't know our history, we don't know the danger that we're facing today. But God began to help me. Back in 2014, I had a dream, which was a very vivid dream, in which I went into the future. And I was attending an outdoor dinner party in which uh, everyone was dressed very formal. We were all wearing, the men were wearing black tuxedos. And uh, we were just, it was at a, a resort area right on the coast. So it was a beautiful setting. And I was part of this uh, big corporation. It was a corporate event. And I was, I was one of them in the dream. And so they began to share with me their plans. And I began to see the evil and ruthlessness of of these people, and I began to uh, be aware that as as I was talking to them, I was able to sense that these people were murderers, and that I could literally sense that they had blood on their hands and on their arms for all the murders they'd committed. And I spoke to the woman who was the leader over the whole corporation, and I understood that she reported to Barack Obama and this was back in 2014, but she began to tell me their plans to implement the final phase of their plan, 
which called for the mass murder of the American people. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but I can just tell you that I came away from that dream thinking, what in the world is this? Why would there be such a plan? And who would want to do this? Who would want to kill the American people? I mean, I know there's always foreign enemies and whatever, but this was an inside uh, job. This was our own government. Um, These people were all under Obama, and they were referring to him as the president, but yet this woman was running uh, the affairs of the country, and I I was not shown what her, her position was, but yet I knew she was in charge, and I knew she was ruthless and extremely evil. And so I came out of that dream just thinking, good grief, what is that all about? And literally have spent years just kind of wondering. But in the more recent years, it has become clear to me because I've started connecting the dots from history. And when I do that, the picture becomes incredibly clear because what I'm seeing is the plans for the future are the same plans. It's just a repeat of what's been happening throughout history for literally a couple thousand years. And in fact, it's the same people ultimately behind it. It's Rome that's behind it. And uh, they're just doing what they've always done. They have been through the Crusades and through the Inquisitions. They have been mass murdering people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it actually goes back farther than that. I mean, Rome has been persecuting Jews first, but then Jews and Christians all the way back to the beginning of the empire. I mean, I've got a spreadsheet where I keep these things, uh, these events from different sources, and it's incredible to see how consistent it has been over the centuries. And they've never stopped. They've never repented. They've been very outspoken about their intentions, saying from the Council of Trent in 1545, cursed be all heretics. That's their position, and they've never repented from it. And that's what they've done prior to that, and that's what they've done afterwards, and that's what they are still planning to do. And the reason why I had that dream, and the reason why they have those plans for the American people, is because America has been a stronghold of Christianity. And so by destroying all the American people, they would, in effect, kill all the Christians at the same time. I mean, they understand that not everyone in America is a Christian, but they don't care, and that's the way they've always operated. They'll just say, kill them all, and uh, that way we, we know we covered it. And so I've spent some time the last few weeks, I've really dug into the historical facts, and very happy to say I've been able to conclusively connect the dots so that I know without a doubt what is happening and how we got to where we are. And specifically, what I've found shows exactly what Daniel saw, what actually King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that Daniel interpreted for him, in which he saw the future kingdoms upon the earth all the way until the return of the Lord. And that final kingdom, which was the fourth kingdom, he saw as legs of iron, and then the feet was a mixture of iron and clay. And it's been really interesting because as, I, as I've studied the history of Rome, 
I have found that, in fact, it is exactly as the scriptures say, that there was this extended period of time in which they operated openly as Rome, um, under the Roman banner, the Roman name, and that is the uh, picture of those legs of iron. But when you get to the lower part and you get to the feet, there is a shift. And in fact, that's what history shows. There was a shift, and it was about 200 years ago. It was in the year 1814, 1815, right in there. Everything shifted. Major, major shift in history. And of course, we've never heard anything about that. It's been hidden from us. And in fact, that is a big part of what the feet are all about. Because in the feet, the iron is still there all the way through to the toes. But it's mixed in with the clay. So it doesn't look the same as it did before. It now is has infiltrated uh, areas of clay that that hide the fact that it's iron. It's the same iron that was in the legs. It's the same Roman kingdom that's always been operating. But now they are operating in a subversive way, in a way that they have infiltrated among us quietly and secretly. But yet they are just as strong. In fact, they are stronger than they've ever been and more dangerous than they've ever been. And yet, at the same time, they are less known. Uh, there's, there's less awareness of their existence. And so I'm going to be sharing my findings with you so you can you know, see the details of what I'm talking about, the shift that took place and how that all happened and uh, how the world was transformed into what we have today. But today I want to illustrate that change and show you how dramatic it was by sharing with you the many Christian leaders who were speaking out against Rome for a period of about 300 years. And it was a unanimous voice. We stood up as one voice um, against Rome and standing in behalf of the scriptures and our faith in God, and we fought back. And it was a great thing to see, and that's, I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation from 1517. So you have this close to 300 years from 1517 to 1815. But it is a striking contrast when you see how the, how the Christians um, spoke in those days. And then you compare that to how the Christian leaders speak today and how there is literally no voice. It was a un we went from having a unanimous consensus, a boldness, um, a defiance to say to this satanic stronghold that you will not push us back. We will push you back because we know who we are in Jesus Christ. And so that's what happened. During that time, uh, Rome was pushed back because the Christians were bold and we were informed and we were in, a, in agreement, we were unified, and we all spoke together as one and we did not hold back. We were not trying to be politically correct. We were just speaking the truth and standing for the scriptures. 
And that is the formula for victory. And that is the same formula for victory today. We can have that kind of victory today. But it, it starts with knowing the truth and then being bold enough to speak the truth. And it's just such a contrast because today uh, there's no voice. There's no Christian leaders that I'm aware of. I mean, very, very few. There's a few, you know, a few small uh, things you might find on YouTube. But I'm talking about the main uh, established Christian leaders. There's nobody talking about this stuff that I'm aware of. And so today I want to share with you how our leaders were bold in those days and how they pushed back the darkness in those days and how that they provided for us an example that we need to follow. And so I'm going to share with you some examples of what I'm talking about and actually start with a couple that were prior to Martin Luther because there were strong Christian communities prior to Martin Luther. It's just that Rome crushed them for the most part wherever they were found, wherever they arose, they were considered heretics and Rome attacked and mass murdered many thousands of Christians wherever the word of God took effect, took root and began to grow. They became a target for Rome. And I shared some of that in my previous program, if you want to go back and listen, but I'm referring to the Crusades, which we were always taught was between Christians and Muslims, and it was not. It was between the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, and anyone who stood in their way and did not submit to Rome. So they waged war relentlessly. They did wage war against Muslims, but they also attacked anyone else that was not under their authority, that was not submitted to them, including the nation of Prussia. They just relentlessly attacked Prussia unprovoked. And over a period of 65 years, they finally wore down the Prussian people, who that was a pagan nation, but they were broken after 65 years, and they were forced to submit to Roman rule and accept Roman Catholicism. And so you see this pattern of how Rome operated, and it's so clearly not Christian. Christians don't spread the gospel with a sword threatening to cut someone's head off or actually cutting their head off unless they submit and uh, come under submission to Rome. But that's how the Roman uh, kingdom has operated from the beginning. And so Rome operated along these lines for well over a thousand years where they were pretty much undisputed. They were the only game in town when it came to religion, and they created this climate of fear that if you would even say a word against the Catholic Church and someone someone would overhear you, you could be tried for heresy. And so it was in that context that these men of God rose up to take a bold stand, putting their life on the line to stand firm and speak out for the Scriptures, for the Word of God. And it was very hard for most people to know the Scriptures in those days because this was uh, long before the printing press even existed. 
they didn't have their own Bibles, and whatever scriptures there were were primarily written in Latin, which was not the language of the masses. So you had this great ignorance among the people that they did not know the scriptures. So they relied on the, the church, and unfortunately the church betrayed them. But in England, there was a scholar named John Wycliffe who studied the scriptures, and he believed them, and he began to declare what the scriptures say and show how they contradicted what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And at one point, John Wycliffe went to Rome, and he was shocked at what he saw, and he wrote over the door of one of the cardinals, Antichrist is now come and sitteth in the church, and then he departed. So that's the kind of boldness this man had to confront this empire that had a reputation for killing any dissenters. But the people listened to him, and some of them believed him, and were curious because here's a man who's quoting scriptures to make his point. And so it sounded strange to them that why would the church be so contrary to the scriptures, but yet how could you dispute this man had the knowledge of the scriptures and was revealing it to them? And he had an impact on many people. In fact, there were two men, two English scholars, who listened and studied what he was saying, and they became so persuaded that they decided to take this message to other parts of Europe. And they traveled all the way to the kingdom of Bohemia, which is the modern-day Czech Republic. They went to the city of Prague. And since they didn't have books to distribute, they decided to present the gospel in a very creative way, and they did it by painting pictures on the walls of this house. And I'm going to read this, uh, what they did. It says, on the one wall, they portrayed the humble entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, meek and riding upon a donkey. On the other wall, they displayed the more than royal magnificence of a pontifical cavalcade. There was seen the Pope, adorned with his triple crown, attired in robes bespangled with gold, and all lustrous with, with precious stones. He rode proudly on a rich horse with trumpeters, proclaiming his approach, and a brilliant crowd of cardinals and bishops following in his rear. And I was reading that from a book called The History of Protestantism by James Wiley. But their graphic portrayal of the contrast between the Lord Jesus and the Pope really highlighted uh, their message and made it loud and clear. And so one of the men there who was a pastor of a church in Bohemia was a man named John Huss. And John Huss was very much impacted by this and decided to pursue it by studying these things out for himself. And it was a big stretch for him because he'd, all he had ever known and all any of them had ever known at that time was the teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, that event happened in the year 1404. 
and that was 20 years after the death of John Wycliffe. But yet the bold stand that John Wycliffe had taken made such an impact on these people that it was continuing to spread throughout other parts of Europe. And John Huss took these things and began to understand the scriptures more than he had ever understood before. And so then he began to see what Wycliffe was talking about, and he began to understand that the scriptures contradicted the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and since he was the pastor of a church there in Prague, he began to be very outspoken in his views and sharing with the people uh, this contradiction. And in this one quote that I have, he says, If the Pope uses his power according to God's commands, he cannot be resisted without resisting God himself. But if he abuses his power by enjoining what is contrary to the divine law, then it is a duty to resist him as should be done to the pale horse of the apocalypse, to the dragon, to the beast, and to the Leviathan. That sounds like a pretty straightforward statement, right? If anybody interested in obeying God would only obey the teachings of a man to the extent that that man was submitted to God. But to the Roman Catholic Church, it was statements like this that were considered heresy. You know, you might think they would say, oh, thank you, Brother John, for pointing out that scripture. We weren't seeing that, but now we understand it more accurately and we can make the necessary changes. No, it's not like that at all. They don't care what the scriptures say. All they care is that you're defying their authority by pointing out these things, and they want to silence him. And so John Huss had to make a decision whether to stand with the scriptures or to betray the scriptures to submit himself to the authority of Rome. And what I like about John Huss is as I read about him, I can see that there were many things he didn't understand. I mean, he'd been raised in this Catholic institution his whole life, and there were still many things he was trying to sort out. He didn't have all revelation. He, he just had a little bit. But what really uh, made an impact on me is that this man was willing to stand on what he did have. And so when he was confronted and arrested and brought before this Council of Constance in the year 1415, they hoped and they gave him every opportunity to recant his statements and to admit his errors, but he refused. And he said, if you can show me from the scriptures where I am in error, then I will be glad to recant. But otherwise, I'm standing on what I've said. And he understood that this could cost him his life, but yet he was not a coward. He was willing to lay down his life for what he believed in, and I I really admire him for that. And so he took his stand, and they condemned him to death. They condemned him to be burned at the stake. And that's what this illustration here is showing, is John Huss being tied up as they're preparing to burn him at the stake. And at that time, he made an amazing statement. He says, It is thus that you silence the goose. But a hundred years hence there will arise a swan whose singing you shall not be able to silence. And so he prophesied 
that a hundred years later would come one that would stand against Rome. And his prophecy was fulfilled by Martin Luther, starting in the year 1517, when he posted his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415, so he became a martyr. But again, we see the same pattern as what happened with John Wycliffe, that after his death, the impact of his life continued on as it was spread to other people. His whole nation took note of the bold stand that he made and his willingness to lay down his life for what he believed. And it just ignited something in them that they also wanted to have what he had. They wanted to know the scriptures like he knew them. And so his life was sown like a seed that just multiplied in Bohemia and produced many strong, committed Christians. And as the people of Bohemia grew strong in their faith, they also grew strong in their resistance of the Roman Catholic Church. They were not willing to submit to that kind of corruption, that kind of evil, any longer. And so they stood firm, and just like John Huss, they said no to Rome. And as a result, the Pope called on leaders of other nations to send armies to go and conquer the Bohemians by force. And it's such a great story because the people of Bohemia were far outnumbered. But yet, time and time again, these nations would attack and the Bohemians would win the victory. And they were just defying all the odds. And it was because God was giving wisdom to their leaders. So they understood how to arrange their smaller numbers of soldiers so that their soldiers were protected while the enemy soldiers were exposed. And they arranged these uh, lines of wagons that they chained together as a barrier. And as the enemy troops would try to get through that barrier, they were vulnerable and the Bohemian soldiers would chop them apart and stab them with spears. And so time after time, the Bohemians, the much smaller Bohemian army, defeated these other armies, and it was great. It was just an amazing thing. This went on for some 15 years of battle after battle, and this is what Rome has done repeatedly. They are relentless, that even if they don't get the victory the first time, they're not done. They're coming back, and you can count on it. And that's what happened is eventually the Bohemian people got worn down, and they just didn't want to fight any longer. They wanted an end to all the fighting. And so they tried to make compromises with Rome. And that was their big mistake. Because as long as they stood firm in their faith, they had the victory. But when they made compromises, uh, they were defeated in battle. And they eventually were forced back into submission to Rome. But it's an amazing story. But yet it's a story that most of us have never heard before. I had not heard it until uh, I started studying these things for myself because it was removed from our history books. There was a time back in the 1800s this story 
was in our school history books. But you won't find it there today, and that's the reason why most of us have never heard this. I mean, John Huss should be a hero for every Christian child growing up. We can see all the great character traits of a hero in this man and the impact of his life and the success that his people had in standing against Rome. It's just a fantastic story. And just as John Huss had prophesied on the day that he was burned at the stake, there did arise that swan, Martin Luther, in the year 1517. And this quote shows the boldness and the directness with which he confronted Rome. He says, We here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. Personally, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to Antichrist. Now, by making that statement, he got a response from the Pope. and Pope Leo X issued a decree which the popes call bulls. So he issued a bull telling Martin Luther he was condemned to eternal damnation. But I love the way Martin Luther reacted because he took that bull, he went outside and gathered some people and he made a fire and he threw that bull into the fire and he made this statement. It says, whoever wrote this bull, he is Antichrist. I protest before God, our Lord Jesus, his sacred angels, and the whole world that with my whole heart I dissent from the damnation of this bull that I curse and execrate it as a sacrilege and blasphemy of Christ, God's Son and our Lord. So then you impious and insensate papists, write soberly if you want to write, whether this bull is by Eck or by the Pope, and Eck was some other Catholic leader. It is the sum of all impiety, blasphemy, ignorance, impudence, hypocrisy, lying. In a word, it is Satan and his Antichrist. If this bull has come out in your name, then I will use the power which has been given me in baptism, whereby I became a son of God and co-heir with Christ, established upon the rock against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. I call upon you to renounce your diabolical blasphemy and audacious impiety, and if you will not, we shall all hold your seat as possessed and oppressed by Satan, the damned seat of Antichrist, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you persecute. Now, living in Germany in the year 1517, Martin Luther would have known as well as anyone that Rome would not tolerate any kind of dissent and that they had long been murdering anyone who would take a stand as he was taking. So he understood what the price was, but yet he disregarded his own life. He was willing to take that risk to take a stand for what he believed. And the impact of his stand was so enormous. It affected so many other people. Because by this time, the printing press had been invented, and they were able to distribute literature reporting on his statements that spread like wildfire throughout Europe. And so Luther ignited the Reformation throughout all of Europe as men began to study what he was teaching. And similar to what had happened with John Huss, they were curious, 
they began to study it out for themselves, and they saw it in the scriptures just like he did. And they also began to take bold stands just like Luther. And so all over Europe you had men rising up like John Calvin making this statement. He says, I deny that see, referring to the Roman Catholic Pope, to be apostolical, wherein not is seen but a shocking apostasy. I deny him to be the vicar of Christ, who in furiously persecuting the gospel demonstrates by his conduct that he is antichrist. And this kind of bold language became the norm for Protestants. This is the way Protestants spoke back in those days. They did not hold back. And another example is in 1646 in England, the Church of England asked some of their leaders to meet together and write down a a statement of what they believed that would be used in their church meetings as a confession of faith. And as part of that statement, here's what they wrote. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Now, I find that to be quite an amazing statement because it's so bold and so direct, and they are just flat out calling the Pope as having that same spirit as the Antichrist. Now, this is not some radical fringe group. This is the statement of faith of the Church of England in 1646, and it just shows how this was the consensus of Protestants. This is how Protestants spoke back in those days, and their words were having a tremendous impact. They were advancing Protestantism all throughout the world and pushing back the influence of Roman Catholicism all throughout the world. And just like the boldness of John Wycliffe made a big impact on John Huss, and the boldness of John Huss made a big impact on the people of Bohemia, these kinds of bold proclamations of faith with people standing together in agreement and proclaiming the Word of God, it was making a powerful difference in the lives of many people and it was pushing back the kingdom of darkness, specifically the kingdom of Rome. And just yesterday, I saw that when I was reading a book written by Jonathan Edwards, who was a American revivalist preacher and president of Princeton University. And I could tell from what he was writing that he was viewing From his perspective, his view of the Roman Catholic Church was that it was in decline. And this was in about the mid-18th century. And that just shows how much the impact of the Reformers and their bold stand that they took, how much impact it had because it had just been a couple hundred years before that that Rome was the undisputed monopoly, the only game in town. But from his perspective... He, he considered that Rome's influence was waning and that they were on the way out. I wish that was true, 
I mean, we now know in hindsight that it wasn't true, but as of the mid-18th century, that's the way it looked to him. And he joined in, like everyone else in those days, in just declaring that the Pope is of the devil, he's of the Antichrist. But he was underestimating Rome's relentless pursuit of their goals. And at that very time that he was writing these things, I'm sure he was unaware, but Rome was busy scheming to put themselves back on top as those legs of iron were transitioning into this new approach in forming the feet of clay and iron. And in my next program, I'm going to share the story of how Rome responded to these Protestant reformers and ultimately rise to far greater power than they ever had before. And it's truly an amazing story. I don't think I'll be able to tell it all in one program, but I think it's a huge story that everybody should know because once we have all those dots connected, then it leaves no more wiggle room, no more doubt about it. So we can begin to know with confidence that Rome is very much alive and well today and advancing their agenda with almost no resistance whatsoever. Because as they were advancing their schemes, they were also employing deceptive tactics that has led to where we are today, to where no one even knows where they are or who they are or what they're up to. And nobody is speaking openly about it. It's completely turned 180 degrees from what it was during those 300 years of the Reformation. In fact, today we even have Christian leaders pledging their allegiance to the Pope and Christian leaders openly declaring that there is no longer any protest and therefore there should no longer be any such thing as Protestants, but we should all be together, uh, joined together as one with the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, we have come full circle from where we were when Martin Luther took his stand. And so it seems like a near impossible challenge to spread this message, but I'm trying my hardest to get the facts out, and hopefully uh, others can pick up where I've left off and spread the word so that we begin to wake up. So thanks for joining me today, and I hope to be back again soon with another program. Until then, so long. So long.